answer. One of Mueller's many missionary tours, a man came to him who was greatly discouraged and needed counsel. This man had six sons for whom he had been praying for many years. His sons, in spite of all his prayers, showed no interest in God or their souls. He wanted George to tell him what to do. Mueller simply replied, continue to pray for your sons and expect an answer to your prayers and you will have to praise God. When Mueller desired to increase the number of orphans from 300 to 1,000, he began to pray for God's help in the matter. He kept on praying day after day for 11 years until God answered his prayer. When Mueller was opening a new home and needed more helpers to staff the orphan houses, he sought the Lord in prayer. Yet when the home was about to open, he didn't have enough applicants to fill the positions on the staff. How did Mueller respond? By thanking God for previous answers to prayer and deciding not to pray just once a day for this matter, but to pray three times a day for helpers. He did this daily for four months and was pleased to see God answer his prayers in an incredible way. Mueller sums up his attitude by simply saying, when once I'm persuaded that a thing is right, that is, it is according to the will of God and for the glory of God, I go on praying until the answer comes. George Mueller never gives up. Mueller was persistent in prayer for several reasons. First, he truly believed that God did answer prayer. God's slowness did not shake Mueller's faith. Before Mueller opened his first orphan house, he prayed daily for 14 months and three weeks. Never during all those times, he said, had I the least doubt that I should have all that is needed, that God would provide. Many of us have a difficult time continuing in prayer because in our heart of hearts, we aren't sure whether God is really listening to our prayers. Jesus tells us, What man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf? Will he give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? That's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Mueller was confident in this promise, and because of that he didn't doubt the Father's goodness. For through 
grace, my mind is so fully assured of the faithfulness of the Lord that in the midst of the greatest need, I'm able to go about my other work. Indeed, if God did not give me this confidence in the faithfulness of God, I should scarcely be able to work at all. So Mueller really believed that God was a God who answers prayer. And second, he believed that God had good reasons for being slow to answer certain prayers. Mueller could actually rejoice when prayers were not immediately answered because of his complete trust in the wise purposes of God. When God did not answer his prayers, George took it as a sign of his love because by doing so, God was strengthening Mueller's faith. Truly, it is worth being poor and greatly tried in your faith for the sake of having day by day such precious reproofs of the loving interest which our kind Heavenly Father takes in everything that concerns us. And how should our Father do otherwise? He's given us the greatest possible proof of his love, which he could have done. What greater proof of his love could he have given to us than in giving his own son? Surely, if he gave his own son, he will freely give us all things. Mueller taught that God would often wait to answer prayer in order to strengthen the believer's faith. When a believer's prayers are not answered quickly, rather than trying to take the matter into your own hands, Mueller would continually look to God for help and wait upon him for his deliverance. Now this doesn't mean that the Christian should do nothing. Mueller believed that a do-nothing attitude was a counterfeit faith. It was a false kind of faith. Instead, the believer should persistently cry out to God and act in obedience to the scriptures. Mueller believed that God delighted in his people's earnest prayers. The parable of the widow and the unjust judge gave Mueller great encouragement continually to bring his concerns before his gracious God. God wants his people to pray persistently, to keep on praying. And then still further, Mueller was persistent in prayer because he longed for the glory of God above all else. His glory, said Mueller, was my chief aim. In other words, that it might be seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in God and that the glory of God should always be in front of his people. That's what they should be concerned about and what they desired his hands. It should be for his glory. 
the Christian's patience under trial can bring honor and glory to God. Mueller wasn't primarily concerned about Mueller. Therefore, he was content in all circumstances. He had the attitude of the Apostle Paul, who said, not that I speak from want, because I lack something, for I have learned to be content in all circumstances. And why would Paul say this? Because Paul was not living for Paul. Paul's life was hidden with Christ. And therefore, it didn't matter what his life circumstances were like so long as God was glorified. One of the primary reasons many of us have difficulties being persistent in prayer is that we pray with selfish motives. The Bible says you ask in James chapter 4 and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. A person who is primarily motivated by the glory of God, Mueller taught, will not become overly discouraged when his prayer requests are not immediately answered. Instead, he will rest in the promise of Romans 8:28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, we should follow Mueller's example and continue in prayer, even when praying is most difficult. Therefore, said Mueller, beloved brethren and sisters, go on waiting upon God, go on praying. Only be sure to ask for things which are according to the mind of God, according to the will of God. God wants us to pray. He makes that abundantly clear in many passages of Scripture. He tells us we should pray at all times in the Spirit and petition for all the saints, being on the alert with all perseverance. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. Pray without ceasing is what 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 17 says. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. God commands us to pray in every circumstance about everything according to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God with thanksgiving. Now those commands are not difficult to understand, but unfortunately, for many of us, they are difficult to obey. We shouldn't give too much credence to statistics, but I was just reading recently that statistics indicate evangelical Christians, by and large, 
pray about three or four minutes a day. And I don't doubt that that's a fair estimate. Even the most unreasonable sin attempts to appear reasonable. And so I'm sure there are many reasons believers give for their lack of prayer. The bottom line is that many Christians don't pray because they just don't enjoy it very much. They know they're supposed to pray, but they don't look forward to doing it. They don't anticipate it. And then when they finally do pray, they pray with one eye closed and one eye on the clock. When they complete this chore so that they can get on to a more pleasurable activity. Well, perhaps this is how you who may be listening to this podcast are feeling as you listen to this podcast on prayer. And your problem, as is true with me as well, is not knowing that we're supposed to pray or we're commanded to pray. Our problem is a lack of desire to do so. And prayer often becomes a drudgery for us, a dreaded task. It's like exercising. You know you need to exercise, but you wish you didn't have to. And if Scripture weren't so clear that you were supposed to pray, you wouldn't do it. Prayer is not something we enjoy to do. It's not refreshing to us. We don't enjoy sweet fellowship with God. We know Christians are supposed to pray, and though we do pray, and that's it, that's the sole reason to do it, because we know God wants us to do it and commands us to do it. For some of us, the reason we don't enjoy prayer is because we don't really feel the need for it. We don't feel desperate for God's help. We're pretty confident in our own ability to handle the situations of life without him. We know intellectually, at least, what the scripture says about our need for God but we don't sense that need in our heart of hearts. And so our attitude toward prayer is like that of the teenager who knows he needs to ask his parents' help, but really doesn't think he needs it. He grudgingly asks for help, and then the parents grudgingly go to prayer to get it over with. But I'm convinced that's not the only reason Some of us may not enjoy prayer the way that we should. Many Christians don't enjoy prayer because, although they know what to do, and they know they're supposed to pray, they don't know or aren't convinced why they are to do it. They really don't understand the point of prayer. Fortunately, 
And this is one of the things I love about Scripture. God doesn't only show us what to do. He also shows us why. That's what we find God explaining in James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Although the preceding verses, verses 13 through 16 of James 5, can be somewhat confusing to understand, the main point is not confusing. He says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him pray. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Let him sing praises. Is anyone therefore suffering, sorrowing? Make it a habit of praying is what James says. Pray in every circumstance about everything. And that's a command as we find it in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. But James doesn't leave us at that. James moves on and he seeks to show us why we ought to pray. He does so by making an amazing statement about the nature of prayer and then giving an illustration which proves how much we need to pray. He writes, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. James is writing to believers who were poor. They were suffering. They were being abused by rich people. They must have been absolutely powerless. They were refugees living in a foreign country. They weren't powerful people. They definitely didn't have a lot of money. Everything seemed stacked against them. And so he's encouraging them by pointing out that they have hope. They may feel like there's nothing they can do Well, James says, you can do something. You can pray, and you should pray, because true prayer is powerful. The statement he makes about prayer is not really difficult to understand. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer is literally a means of power. It is effective and can accomplish much. That's a stunning statement. But, and you need to understand this, James is not simply making a blanket statement about prayer in general. He's very specific. He uses three different terms for prayer throughout these verses. 
The first two words, which are found in verses 13 through 15, are very general terms for prayer. The particular word he uses for prayer in verse 16, however, is not just another general term, it's very specific. He's not referring to prayer in general, but instead to a very specific kind of prayer. He would translate his word for prayer, petition, supplication, or request. This is the kind of prayer that arises out of a need or a sense of lacking something. James is talking about a prayer in which you make specific requests of God. This means he's not just motivating us to pray, but specifically James wants to motivate us to make requests of God in prayer, to go before him and to cast our cares upon him. Notice he doesn't simply say prayer can accomplish much. Instead, he says the prayers of a righteous man can accomplish much. This promise, this statement about the power of prayer applies only to a prayer made by a specific kind of person. The promise of this verse does not apply to a person who is living wickedly. There are some who throw out scripture because they say, I prayed, and didn't accomplish anything. In other words, they refused to believe this passage because I prayed and it didn't accomplish much for me. But the fact is, God makes quite a different promise to those who are living in obedience to his word. If you're not a righteous person, God says something completely different about the power and effectiveness of your prayers. He says to those whose prayers are motivated by selfish desires, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's James chapter 4 and verse 3. Your prayers are not effective because they're motivated by selfish desires. The selfish person can't claim this promise. A man Jesus healed and point blank said to those who live in unrepentant sin in John 9 and verse 31 is that we know that God does not hear sinners. In other words, God does not answer the prayers of wicked people. If God does not hear a person's prayers, you can be sure that their prayer is not effective because the power lies not in prayer itself, but in the God who hears the prayer. And God hates the prayers of the unrepentant sinner. The book of Proverbs tells us that one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, from listening to God, what God says we should do, the one who does that is one that God will not 
hear that prayer. He hates the prayers of the unrepentant sinner. The book of Proverbs tells us that one who turns away his ear from hearing God's law, even his prayer, is an abomination. That's Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 9. The prayers of the wicked are not effective and do not accomplish much. James isn't talking about just any kind of prayer. He's talking about the prayers of a righteous man. That term righteous indicates to us that he's referring to the prayers of a believer. We know that one of our greatest blessings as believers is that the God who sent the Lord Jesus into the world, sent him in to die on our behalf, and then he credits Christ's righteousness to the account of those who believe. This means he looks on us and treats on us as if we had lived Christ's life. As believers, there's a sense in which we are all righteous, not because of something we have done, but because of what Christ has done. We have confidence that God hears our prayers because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I think this little phrase, the righteous man, implies something more than us being righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been put to our account. In the context here, James is speaking of a person who's dealing with his sin in a biblical manner. Look at what he writes immediately before this little statement about the power of prayer. He says, if you confess your sin and pray for one another, you will be healed. Obviously, he's not talking then about a person who has never sinned. That's not what he means by the righteous person. But rather, he's talking about the person who, although he has sinned and at times still does sin, he seeks to deal with that sin in a godly manner. He confesses his sins, acknowledges that he has committed sin and seeks God's forgiveness. It is that person's prayers that are effective and will accomplish much. See, the Bible does teach that even if you're a believer, if you're continuing in unrepentant sin, that sin will affect your prayers. Thomas Watson explains, quote, sin lived in, if we live in sin, affects our prayers. He said it makes the heart hard and God's ear deaf. Sin stops the mouth of prayer. It does what the thief does to the traveler. It puts a gag in his mouth so that he cannot speak. Sin poisons prayer. Sin will clip the wings of your prayers 
so that your prayers will not fly to the throne of grace. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you can't expect, or you shouldn't expect, you have no reason to expect that your prayers will be very effective. There's a very interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, which teaches us that very thing. Speaking to husbands, Peter says, you must live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. His point is that a failure to obey the command to live with your wives in an understanding way, a failure to live with your wife in the way that God desires will actually hinder the effectiveness of your prayers. So it's important to understand before we consider the promise that James makes here, he's not just talking about any and every kind of prayer. He's very specific. He's speaking about requests made to God by a person who is a believer, who is seeking to obey God, a person who is seeking to obey God, and although he is not perfect, is dealing with his sin by repentance and confession on a regular basis. And James promises that that person's prayers will accomplish much. Now that's quite a promise. I want you to think about it. It's obvious James wants to highlight the power of prayer. That's why he uses two words, not just one. It's as if he can't contain himself. He doesn't merely say that the prayers of a righteous man are effective. He says the prayers of a righteous man are effective and will accomplish much. The word effective is a great word. It literally means to have power to a great degree. When you start to look at what God's word says about prayer, you quickly discover that God goes to great lengths to encourage us to pray. And one of the ways he does that is by pointing out to us that prayer is an incredible resource which has great power. Prayer is not a toy, it's a weapon. And it has this power because God promises to hear and answer the prayers of his saints. In the Psalms, God is calling himself the prayer-hearing God. The proverb says that prayers of the upright are a delight to God. Jesus encourages us to pray by comparing God to a human father. And he says, if a human father who is a sinner loves to take care of his children, how much more will God who is perfect and has perfect love for his children, how much more will he answer his children's prayers? Prayer is powerful, but because 
of the grace of God and not because of the works of the person. He's saying God will have perfect love and will listen to, take care of, and answer his children's prayers as they are living for him. Prayer is powerful, not because there is any sort of magic in prayer itself, but because God has promised to hear and answer his children's prayers. So there's a sense in which through prayer you have access to the power and might of God, the ruler of the universe. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. My own soul's conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe. That is, it has an omnipotent force because God is omnipotent. It has more force than electricity, than gravitation, or any of those other secret forces which men have called by names, such as electricity or gravity, but which they do not understand. Prayer has a palpable, as true, as sure, as invariable an influence over the entire universe as any of the laws of nature. When a righteous man really prays, is not a question of whether or not God will hear him. He must hear him. Not because there's any compulsion in the prayer, but there is a sweet and blessed compulsion in the promise. God has promised to hear prayer, and he will perform his promise, as he is the most high and true God. He cannot deny himself. Oh, to think of this. Mueller would say that you, a puny man, may stand here and speak to God and through God may prove and move all the worlds.